Paul, as I uh, look down here at these cards assembled before me, it occurs to me that this may be the one recurring bit of hilarity on the program that we do that does not have an accompanying introductory theme from you. Theme. That is correct. Up until now. What? That is up until now because I have done something very special for this evening. I have taken the liberty of commissioning a special theme for viewer mail by one of the truly great American composers. Let me mention a couple of titles to you. Moon River, Pink oh. Panther, Peter Gynes, Charade, Days of Wine and Roses. These are just a few of the classic pieces created by this man, this genius. Please welcome to debut his new theme for viewer mail, oh, Mr. Henry Mancini, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, my goodness. Welcome to this week's Windy Was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Well, first off, just a little quick uh, news bite that has come out in the last week. Shout Studios has acquired the North American rights to the music documentary Revival 69, the concert that rocked the world. So that was actually announced at South by Southwest in Austin. And I'm assuming the concert that rocked the world was the Toronto Music Festival? Exactly. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> this documentary has been rumored for years and years. And while John is a significant piece of it, you know, there's a lot more to that show than people ever talk about. We got this phone call that there was a rock and roll revival show and that Chuck was going to be there and Jerry Lee was going to be there. And up the great rockers were still living. The doors were top of the bill. There's a lot of founding fathers of rock and roll. And the doors. I'm always surprised that that doesn't get a little bit more mention than it actually did. Right. Can you imagine John Lennon and Jim Morrison running across each other? I don't think uh, they ever actually met, from what I know. Right. Morrison was a pretty heavy drinker. I don't know what else Morrison was into. Well, he was into young ladies. <laughs> the best scene from the Doors film is, well, the girl in the elevator. Are we talking about Oliver Stone's movie or... Oliver Stone's movie, yes. Ah. But the thing about that, which was always a little bit strange to me, was that they got all these founding fathers of rock and roll, all these guys that John loved, 
and John still didn't find a way to take the plane over earlier so he could catch some of them. That was kind of an intense time for business, Apple and all that stuff. So, And they are obviously going heavy on the angle of this was the show that caused John Lennon to decide that he was done and was leaving the Beatles. I wanted the Beatles thing to end. I felt as though I couldn't breathe if it went on any longer. We can argue whether that is the case or is not the case. Right. I mean, it's only part of it, but I don't know. Right. It gave him the confidence to walk away, but he was walking away either way, I kind of think. Yeah, I totally agree. No announcement as to when we're actually going to see it, but unlike May Pang, a home video release is on the horizon. Right. Go May Pang. May Pang, April 13th. So this week, we have asked our friends to provide some viewer mail for us, even though, well, you can't see us, but you're looking at the screen, so we'll call it viewer mail. It is viewer mail. And you people who didn't send a question, now, aren't you ashamed? You could be in the show. But you didn't send a question. <laughs> Some people did, thankfully. Yes. <laughs> As David Letterman used to say, first we read them, then we answer them. That's the little thing we call viewer mail. One of these questions is actually for me, so it's my mail, not a viewer mail. But Now, once again, these are actual letters from actual viewers. Uh, let's get right to it. What do you think? Should we have Hal call them out tonight, uh, Paul? Yeah, always good for a laugh. All right. It's uh, sort of to add to the festivities going on. Our director, Hal Gertner, will now call out the numbers of the viewer mail letters. Hal? Uh, Gurney, David. That's right. Hal Gurney. I'm sorry. Ready? Letter number one. This one we're going to probably answer in pieces throughout the show. This comes from Tom Hunyadi of Two Legs and Talk More Talk. What songs would have made a good single for the 1973 albums Living in the Material World, Red Rose Speedway, and Mind Games? He didn't include Ringo because, well, Ringo got three singles, but I'm going to include Ringo in here. <laughs> because you can. Because it's our show. Let's outline what the actual singles were so people uh, may have okay. uh, forgotten at this point in time. Could be. Living in the Material World, the single was uh, Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth which we just talked about, Ben Harper doing it in the George Fest show. Right. With the flip side, Miss Odell. A very good song. Red Rose Speedway. Gosh, that was a little song known as My Love. That song did well. Eh, just a little bit. And then off of the Mind Games album, it was the lead-off track, Mind Games. Right. Now, the three singles Ringo had off of the Ringo album were Photograph, You're 16, Right. And Oh My My. Yes, you are correct. Let's start with Ringo. If there were a four single, and you know, I think the record could have had a four single, I would have gone with Six O'Clock. It's the Ringo-McCartney collaboration. Right, and just the fan aspect of it would have brought attention to that song, and that would have been a good choice for sure. Although, from that album, the song that I always felt like should have got more attention was... Uh, Sunshine Life for Me. Sail Away Raymond, which is a George Harrison composition. And it's basically the band backing them up. There's a lot of stuff press-wise. You go, well, it's written by George and sung by Ringo and played with members of the band. But every track on that record is a good track. There's very little fat on the Ringo record. That's a good album. And that's really one of the few solo albums where you could say... Every song on there almost could have been a single. Yeah, the songs that weren't singles tried to be. I mean, you could see how they were kind of arranged to produce, like, this is going to be a single. It's a sunshine life for me If I could get away from this cloud that's over me Seems to just follow me around It's a good life had for free When you're out in the country That's what I could use If I could get away there soon Let's move on to some of the other things And in between these other questions We will come back to Tom's question here We've still got John, Paul, and George Which are the ones he was asking about So right. stay tuned 
I want to move on. This is my question. You know, we always read about Liverpool in 1960 to 1962, and certainly the Proto Beatles, the Quarrymen, and then the Silver Beatles were able to make a living. So there had to have been enough clubs to make that possible. How or why was that the case? Liverpool, a city largely known for comedians and... It certainly had some stage shows, but did the scene show up and the Beatles were fortunate enough to take part in it? Or was it the fact that the Beatles were making their bones at the time and club owners said, hey, there's lots of groups out there. Maybe I can find a way to make some money off of this. That's kind of my question. It has been pointed out that there certainly was the cavern before there was a Beatles, and even before there was a Quarrymen. I mean, the Quarrymen played in the cavern in the very early days. I thought Liverpool had a music scene just like Manchester did. I mean, there were other places in England that also had kids, basically, playing music. But were they large enough to actually have these kids make a living off of it? I don't think that any of them were really making a living off of it. Everybody's living at home. Britain is... Still pretty close to the war, recovering. It's been said that by the end of 61, by the time Paul actually went full-time, that he quit any other job that he might have had, wrapping wire, that he was still making more than his dad did. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Is that proto-Beatles, as it were? I'm thinking back in the late 50s. And that's why I specifically said 1960 to 1962. The late 50s... I would agree with you. The scene was just starting to happen. The Casbah would have been amongst the very early rock rock and roll clubs that these kids would go to. It's in a cellar in a house. It's a kind of a ratty little place that teenagers hung out at, and you make a bit of money. I, I just don't think anybody is really doing all that well. It was the way that kind of scene always is in in all cities or all towns. You read Beatles Live through 61 and through 62, you know, before the Beatles really started going anywhere other than Hamburg, they were still playing every night, sometimes two and three times a day. Yes, they were the Beatles, but they weren't the only band who was getting that many gigs. 292 times in the cavern or so, they say. We came back from Germany beginning of June. At this time, as well as playing other dance halls, you know, regularly, we started to play at a place called The Cavern, doing lunchtime sessions. But there were other bands who were doing just as well. Ringo was actually better off than any of the Beatles were. And that wasn't all Butlin's money. Right. So, I mean, it's kind of a strange question, and I will agree with you that 59 to 60, we're talking about fates, and we're talking about college dances, you know, at the art school and borrowing things from them. But by 60, you had enough to support Alan Williams and Bob Wooler and the Iron Door Club. It seems that Liverpool was almost like 6th Street throughout the whole of the city or do you think i'm wrong i don't know if you're wrong i don't think it was that big a deal i mean that everybody's making any kind of bank everybody seems to be struggling i mean you read alan williams biography i mean he was scrambling to make money any way he could as was everybody so i just don't think that anybody was necessarily flourishing but i also recognize that it grew. I mean, it didn't just become nothing to this really incredible scene overnight. It was a growing thing. More and more people got involved. But it just strikes me that the same sort of thing was going on in other towns in England. Even in London, there's the two eyes and there's a handful of clubs around there. But it doesn't seem to me that there was quite as vibrant a scene you know the stones as far as i know didn't play nearly as much as the beatles did in the pre-days yeah i think that's true but i think we also have to recognize how close this really is to the beginnings of rock and roll 
you know, it is a growing thing. It's not rock and roll is like a cancer spreading over England slowly. I guess our different views would say that we maybe disagree about the vibrancy of it. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So that then leads to the other question. The scene certainly did grow between the years of 60 and 62. Is it the fact that the number of teenagers was increasing and that the whatever money there was to be made was just because there were lots of kids around? Or was it the bands themselves that were making things happen in Liverpool? Oh, they are making some money in the cavern. I'm not making any money doing what I'm doing in a restaurant or in a coffee bar. Maybe I'll start bringing in musicians. Right. Yeah, I'm just thinking you're not really making a whole lot of money between four or five people at the Casbah, you know. And in the early days, uh, they were lucky to get sandwiches and a Coke to play. But, again... By late 61, Paul was making more than his dad was, which is not a big, huge bank. I mean, you know, how much are you going to make as a cotton salesman and a part-time fireman? But it does mean something. By late 61, that's the thing that Epstein went to see, was this scene that was happening at the cavern. By that point, it was, and then he made it bigger, turned it up. By late 61, certainly, it was chugging along. So, okay, your answer to that is it was just kind of growing and there was enough of a scene to attract Brian's attention. No, not in that way. (laughs) Well, you know, his his evolution of his record store has to go along with that, being a place for kids to go and hang out, listen to records. and, And then Bill Harry's whole thing of, hey, I should start a newspaper, which was very much like the public news. (laughs) <laughs> in its own way yes so i don't know we were some differing opinions but i think that was that's something to think about shall we say we shall say let's move on to part two of tom's question uh, which of the three do you want to take living the material world red rose speedway or mind games well i personally think that the second single from material world would have to be don't let me wait too long a great song I think I'd go with Sue Me, Sue You Blues. Okay. It's a little bit poppier. It is probably the only song on Living in the Material World that is not a slightly slower spiritual. Except for Don't Let Me Wait Too Long. And even, to a certain extent, Living in the Material World. Yeah, but Living in the Material World has that Indian-style break in the middle, which would kill it for radio. From the spiritual Although, are, are the lyrics... wouldn't be enough to save it in the programmer's ears no i don't think so and in 73 i don't know sue me sue you blues jesse ed released it as a single what a year later yeah and george made a video for it that's something i don't quite get you're not going to release it as a single but you're going to make a video for it it could have been considered the production of don't let me wait too long is real radio friendly with the strummy guitars and cool harmonies. And so that would just be my choice.
It's very much in the same feel as the Splinter album. Or Photograph. <laughs> that as well, yes. It's still a little bit slow, maybe. But I mean, again, you know, we're going to be talking about my loves. <laughs> but it's not a soppy ballad. It's a, It's almost too intelligent for pop radio in 1973. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. We will come on back to Tom as we get to it. I like this. You really get the sense that something important is transpiring when nothing could be farther from the truth. (laughs) Next up comes from the queen of all Beatles media, our good friend and co-host of Toppermost of the Poppermost, Kid O'Toole. We're going to finally hear Mal Evans' story later this year, and incidentally, the word from Ken Womack is that Father's Day is now out, and they have pushed the Mal Evans book back to October, November, which is a shame. Oh, well, what's a few more months? Are there any other insiders, living or dead, that you think have yet to tell their Beatles or solo story? Who do you think deserves a biography? I would like to hear an honest telling of the Dick James story. Are there enough people still around to be able to find that out, do you think? You know, I don't know. I'm really hoping that all the paperwork is in Mark Lewison's closet. That would be a good place to find out. And I'd also be interested in a book that kind of looked at Brian's deals, his movie deals with the United artists in Hard Day's Night and his royalty deal in 1967 and the marketing. Uh, Since we're talking about Dick James, do you think his partner actually existed, Silver? I've never seen a picture. I've never seen anyone describe the man even. What was his name? Charles Silver? Yeah. It's a name, but it's like, I have seen no proof that this man exists. Yes. (laughs) Right. Well, that would be chapter two. (laughs) <laughs> i don't really know because i would have to say i don't either i've never seen a picture or... there's lots of stuff in the dick james story even non-beatle stuff that would be really interesting to find out about you know yeah. even the business of writing the robin hood theme and uh, getting some fame off of being someone who wrote music for television. And his business dealings with Elton John. That as well, which they messed up completely in Rocket Man. It's one of those things I have thought about as to, you know, certainly by the time they did the promotional video for Apple in the summer of 68, there was already some bad feeling there between John and Paul and Dick James. And I'd be interested in the evolution of that. When did they start really getting an idea of this? Was it because of Brian's death? That would kind of be my answer to that question. It was when they really had to sit down and look at uh, where is the money going and how much are we getting out of every dollar or pound that comes in? I mean, of course, the stock answer during the touring years was it's all going to the government. But, you know, I'd be interested to find out who brought them the information. You know, who was advising them after Brian died? I'm sure they were getting advice and, and information from all sorts of people. But who, who were these people? You know, there's their accountant. I've read a little bit about him, but not too much. Yeah. He is brought up in song and get back, but. Uh... <laughs> right. Before I get into mine, what about Neil Aspinall? I mean, we have a lot about Neil Aspinall, but there's a lot we don't have. Or do you think that the significant bits of Neil's life are going to be covered in the Mal book? I mean, they do always go together. There's a lot of personal involved. Neil's relationship with Mona Best and fathering a child and um, 
that relationship is always going on behind the scenes. Did John got his medals from from Mona? Uh, when did Rogue learn that Neil was his dad? I don't know. How much do you have a right to know? I'm certainly not going to ask Rogue Bass that question. Right. I mean, I think Neil had a, a an interesting life that would be good to read about. Even if you want to just sort of cut out everything before 65 and do Neil from 65 to 95, there's a really fascinating book there. And I mean, you know, it, right. it will certainly go back to the business of Pete and Hamburg and the bests and all of that. But just that story. Yeah. But that's not my choice. And, and my choice actually does tie into what we were just saying. My choice is Jane Asher. Or short of that, a real book from Peter Asher. Peter Asher is the epitome of what we were saying. He will tell stories, but he chooses not to dwell on anything personal, and I don't blame him. So it's certainly his right to do it. And considering that's Jane's apparent approach as well, then... Yeah, I think Peter kind of just is taking Jane's lead on the business of oh, what actually happened between the two of them. Yeah, for sure. We kind of have the general shape of their relationship. They met. She was the actress model. Paul was the up-and-coming rock star. How did their relationship grow that quickly that he was invited to live on Wimpole Street? In a matter of months. Even separate from the relationship, there is her relationship to the music. Maybe there's no story there. You know, maybe she was away so much that it was Paul writing these things. And, oh, you know, this is a song about what we were doing or what we were thinking. And it's like, oh, okay, fine. Right. But, you know, even stories like I would really be interested in hearing about the trip to the States when they came for Jane's birthday. Yeah, April 67. Again, there's lots of gossipy stuff about the end, but... That's not what I'm interested in. I don't care that Jane found him in bed with... Was that Francie or was that somebody else? I believe it was Francie. None of my business, and I don't really care about it. The only reason that would interest me is if that's why she actually decided to call off the engagement. We're kind of missing a pretty significant chunk of certainly Paul's history. You know, Maureen and Cynthia, it's nice, but... Neither one of them were particularly as upfront as Jane was. Paul and Jane were a cool couple, and so they were celebrities of their day, whereas... George and Patty approached that. Patty was a well-known model, and you know, George was George. But it, it still kind of seems like we've heard all or most of Patty's stories, and, and they're interesting how that would lead to India, and that is where... Patty seems to come into the picture, at least as far as Beatles stuff goes. Because of circumstances, we've learned all the gossipy details about their breakup and uh, the fact that, oh, she went to Eric. And, but again, I don't really care. It's none of our <laughs> business. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I care in as much as, yes, at least somewhere in all of us is this slight gossip and it's like ooh there are people too and there are people who have all these nasty relationship problems okay a lot of the stuff that's out there is out there because the people themselves have shared it as part of their story so we have a a deeper view into their lives than most people have of public figures bringing us back to May Pang what she wrote about was far too much of the gossipy relationship stuff i would have liked a lot more of the working with john lennon or working with john and yoko end of things right and she blames that all on her publisher and i don't disagree that particularly where the world was at that point in time the point was let's get uh, as many eyeballs on this as we can the people who were reading people magazine and that's where loving john came from right and that's why I certainly hope that we get a better rounded view in this film, but we'll see. Right. 
We have beaten that question to death, I think. And I've completely lost my place. I have no ah. idea. <laughs> this is the only show on NBC right now. Next up, we've still got Lennon and we've still got McCartney. McCartney, Red Rose Speedway, My Love Was the Single. What are you going to go with as a Red Rose Speedway single? Little Woman Love. It was recorded during those sessions. and It's a rocker? Yeah. You know, the problem with Red Rose Speedway is half of the album is unissuable as singles. <laughs> the medley's not going to be a single. Right. Uh, Loop, first Indian on the moon is not going to be a single. Right. That leaves seven songs. You're entirely justified in going off book. <laughs> right. But I also, in parentheses, put Little Lamb Dragonfly. Which is a great song, but a single? I looked at all the other songs and was like, that's it. <laughs> it's a six-minute ode to a dying lamb outside his window. Yeah. That's a little bit morbid for pop radio in 1973. Nah. Although pop radio does have a tendency to like the slightly morbid sometimes. The quirky. It would have been that. And that, that's also a song that could suffer a radio edit and not lose much. Oh, that's a long fade. It's a beautiful song, and I love it on the album, but I don't see that being a single. My choice is Get On The Right Thing. It's of about the right length. It's got a it's got hooks galore and the chorus is just so sing along. You put that out as a single, I think that would have a chance of being a hit. And you got Paul doing silly voices. Which is always a plus. <laughs> Look at you, Tony King. <laughs> We've got two questions about box sets, so let's combine them together. This comes from Martin, our other co host on Toppermost, and David Modlin, our fan from uh, the Facebook group, who always tells us that he will listen after midnight. After midnight, don't let it all hang down. The two questions are, what is the archive reissue, either solo or band related, that you're most looking forward to, and what are you hoping will be included on it? And you mentioned the 1965 box being in the pipeline. I used to have a German pressing of the stereo 14-track vinyl help album, which I enjoyed because it separated the backing vocals from the lead. Do you think the original stereo mix of help will be included in the upcoming box set? Well, taking the second half of that first, no. <laughs> they have not included original stereo mixes on any of the box sets. I don't see them doing it for the 1965 box. Right. I agree with that. They'll do other stuff. Following what they've done, we'll get a mono disc of each of them. Helping Robert Soul. It is kind of interesting. What are they going to do with the stereo mixes? They might consider putting one or both of the George Martin stereo mixes of Rubber Soul out, even though no one really likes them, just kind of for historical purposes. But I still think that's not going to happen. Yeah. But for help, I don't see them doing that. It might be interesting for them to put together a box set someday, somewhere down the line, of just some of these oddball mixes. Help was actually the last mono album we got. And Rubber Soul was the first stereo. But I have to recognize that's a personal thing that happened to me. But that's, that's kind of the way I hear it in my head, is like there were all mono mixes and then stereo. There are at least three different stereo mixes of Help. If there's more than two versions of Help, I'm going to scream. <laughs> help the album, not Help the song. But uh, <laughs> I, I can listen to Help the song all day long in whatever mix you want to throw at me. <laughs> you want to give me just the backing vocals? Great. <sighs> now, now these days are gone, days are gone. I'm not so self-assured. And now I find out I've changed my mind. I'm opening up the doors. Ed, you're the reason why these things cost $3,000. <laughs> Whatever we get off of Help, I'm going to take and I'm going to love because Help is, it's certainly my favorite of the early tracks and it's easily top five overall. And anything you can tell me about Help, I'm going to listen to it and I'm going to pay attention to it. So, All right, so Martin's end of this question. Uh, what archive release, either solo or band, 
are you most looking forward to and what are you hoping will be included on it? And I'm going to surprise you with my answer to this. Which is? I want a really, really big, really good off-the-ground box, which includes all of the unplugged outtakes and all of the McCartney Live at the Ed Sullivan. Thank you. Good evening. Okay. All right. Hey, up. So you know what all this is about then tonight, do you? But you do not know. It's a new uh, show they've got. New show called Un... Oh, no, it's not called Unplugged. It's called Up Close. How's that? Okay, so we're going to run through a bunch of numbers for you. I hope you enjoy yourselves and rock on, guys. Both of those were McCartney at his best vocally. You know, the Off the Ground album, which I like a lot more than a lot of people do, I don't consider it just leftovers from Flowers in the Dirt, which is where kind of a lot of people put it. Get Out of My Way has always been a track that, from the day I first heard it, it's like the train whistle caught me. Wow. That is an unexpected choice. Well, it's not just an off-the-ground box. I would say a, a 9192 box, which includes off-the-ground and all of the unplugged stuff. There's at least three discs of other unplugged material and the two up-close specials from the Ed Sullivan Theater. Well, let's see if that happens. I don't think off-the-ground will actually end up being that box. I think there's a decent possibility that we'll get up close and unplugged together in a set. Right. You know, I would just throw it in there because I kind of don't think off the ground is going to sell by itself. Right. But unplugged, everyone remembers that. Right. So your choice on this. I want a mashup of the Magical Mystery Tour and Yellow Submarine Sessions. Which we've talked about before. It's something which has only sort of been done. And even then, not really. We haven't gotten the Giles treatment on everything. That's what we want. Giles to take that material and Peter Jackson's magic. And it would be the American album, you know, with Rich Man and... A Giles version of the German version of the Magical Mystery Tour album. Right. And there's one which I wouldn't mind them putting out that in the box set. Because the German stereo has always been viewed as the absolute best sounding version of the Magical Mystery Tour album. Right. Those songs are all just really magical to me. I mean, I can just imagine having this more modern mix that, that Giles does for It's All Too Much. Have we ever gotten the long version of All Too Much? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, on a boot. <laughs> that's the only place I can think of that we've gotten it. That sort of thing, you know, put them together and... Do the thing that they've been doing. Do that thing they do with it. They do so well. And and then the question would come up, if you were going to reproduce the Elsa Marine album, you'd have to include Martin's music on side two. If you do that, you have to do a whole disc and just do the complete versions. We don't get all the soundtrack music on the album, do we? That side is not all the incidental music from the film. No. I would have a whole disc, and then if people don't want to play it, they don't have to play it. <laughs> but, I mean, a, a lot of people really like the George Martin soundtrack stuff. Oh, I love it. That has been one of the biggest earners for the George Martin estate <laughs> through the years, yep. Yeah, I can imagine. And then the other thing that I'd really like to see would be both Masters sets, all the singles. Even though they're putting the singles on the box sets, you'd still want them together in a past Masters. The problem is, of course, is that that aspect reaches back to those early three-track Masters. See, Leap can come give me a dying hand, for example. He hasn't gone that far back yet. And that's the question. I guess we'll just have to see what the 65 box ends up sounding like. From what we got off of Revolver, 
it's pretty good. And from what the not Peter Jackson version of the demixing technology, it's pretty good. We will get some interesting things. All right, so that leaves us with, well, John. Mind Games was the single. What other songs would have made a good single out the blue? Elton released it as the B-side of the Lucy in the Sky single. So that would have been an unexpected single from John. It's not a rocker. It's the softer ballady side that might have attracted some attention at that point in time. It's a good song. I picked Free to People. great song maybe a little bit too political for what john was going through maybe of course john never shied away from politics he put it on the album (laughs) exactly if kind of going into the lost weekend period he'd put that out as a single that would have had him still up front in the political movement for as long as he could have been right so there tom we have answered all of your questions there you go. Tony DeMeo, how do you think the Venus and Mars album would differ if John had reunited with Paul in 1975 as he originally planned? Well, first off, I don't think John would have gone down for the whole album. Perhaps not. Had things occurred that he still would have gone down, it would have been one song, maybe two. So I don't think that Venus and Mars would be that much different. Maybe not. But at the same time, I think Paul would have tried harder to be hard. You could see something like, listen to what the man said, done harder, but not as poppy. Maybe there would be a co-write or a John song that... Paul adds some lyrics to in place of like spirits of ancient Egypt. Could be. Can you imagine John sitting in the control room? Paul goes, uh, you know, I'll play you some stuff I've been recording. And he plays him. You gave me the answer. <laughs> he would turn right around and leave. <laughs> right. Paul, you're still doing over the deal. We're not doing Maxwell again. <laughs> right. Although John would have liked letting go, I think. Yeah, I agree. What about Magneto and Titanium Man? John had no problem with pop culture. I don't know if he would have had any knowledge of the comic book source material, but as a song, he might have appreciated it. You know, by that time, there had already been the press stuff. And so I just think the end result really would have been Paul would have been a little bit more going for the harder edge in front of John. Well, which would have improved Venus and Mars. I I think so, yes. Do you think John would have gone for the concept, the opening of each side with Venus and Mars, and the two different versions? I don't know. I mean, John liked that sort of stuff. I thought it was effective and a good idea. And, I Uh, mean, of course, Venus and Mars Rock Show is and will probably forever be the single best opening to a concert that you could do. (laughs) Right. I guess our answer is it would probably be slightly harder edged. There would probably be a couple less wings tracks, meaning Spirits of Ancient Egypt and probably Medicine Jar would be out the door. I don't know. Medicine Jar was... Jimmy's. Jimmy's, yeah. No, I think he would have left it in. I don't know what John Lennon's response to that would have been, but, I mean, of course, John would have recognized the keep on sticking your hand in the Medicine Jar line. That's (laughs) kind of what he'd just been through. Right. For all we know, the sessions could have gone. He comes down and goes, so uh, what's Yoko going to do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Or May Pang would be there, and May Pang would throw love at the whole scene, and it would become the greatest album of all time. No, no, no. That's what May likes to tell us. All right, so we got time for, let's see, two more, I think. How about Hudson's question? What do you think is the most overrated Beatles song? Which was a good thing to consider, because in order to be overrated, it has to be rated. You can't pick Mr. Moonlight. (laughs) And you can't pick Revolution Number 9. 
Right, exactly. So you have to pick a song that has some impact so you can go, wow, way overrated. I'm kind of going to go with When I Get Home, which maybe is still not rated enough for what you're pointing at. Right. But that would be my choice. It, it was at least considered for a single. It's a little bit repetitive, and then, I mean, the lyrics aren't great. Okay. I picked Hello, Goodbye. It's, it's really a silly song. It's very sing-songy. Basically, what it is, is a, it's a clever arrangement. So, way to go, George Martin. We know the whole origin of that. Paul sitting down and saying, let's write a song. Asking Hunter Davies to give him some words, and there you go. Right. But it got to number one. And that ending. <laughs> Maori ending. To me, the song is just a collection of ideas. And it's really the thing that Neil Innes parodies best when he does the ruddles. It's just that sort of like ideas. <laughs> it's still just his sheer force of will that makes it work. Right. I mean, you may say, well, no, it doesn't work, but it works well enough that most people don't recognize what you're saying. It got to number one, and I like it, but I just think it's overrated. It's not that I don't like the song, but it's not something that's really great, in my opinion. I'm one of the ones who will listen to anything in the canon, and I genuinely believe that most of what's there is at least pretty good. Yeah, for sure. Even Mr. Moonlight and When I Get Home, it's like, okay, fine. Yeah, there are things about all this stuff that I love. Just this show requires a certain amount of, okay. This is opinion. For once, we're not spouting facts. <laughs> right. It's just, what do you think? Right. Last, or maybe we can squeeze in one more, depending on how long this goes. This is from Jamie Daruwala, formerly of Toy Subs, and he, he played on one of your albums, didn't he? Uh, no, Alex did. Ah, his guitar player, Alex Tittle, played yes. one of your records. John once said that the music of ELO was like the sons of Beatles. We're going to play Electric Light Orchestra uh, from last year, Showdown, which I thought was a great record, and I was expecting it to be number one, but I don't think uh, UA got their fingers out and pushed it. And it's a nice group. I call them son of Beatles, although they're doing things that we never did, obviously. But I remember the statement they made when they first formed was to carry on from where the Beatles left off with Walrus, and they certainly did. Now, for those uh, people who like to know where licks and things come from, which I do, because I'm always nicking little things myself, this is a beautiful combination of I Heard It Through the Grapevine by Marvin Gaye and uh, Lightning Strikes Again, Lou Christie. And it's a beautiful job with a little walrus underneath. Do you think that that is what they would have sounded like if they had continued meaning the psychedelic ELO-style band, or would they have followed current trends? That's a good question. All four of them, well, not George, really. George wasn't ever one to follow trends. Right. Let's take the first part of that question first. Had the Beatles continued into the 70s, would they have sounded like what ELO put out? I'm going to say no, because the whole thing about the Beatles was change. One album to the next, one song to the next, one minute to the next, they wanted change. They never wanted to repeat themselves. And kind of doing ELO would have been repeating themselves. And I think that that style of composition probably would have crept up again in all of their work. Consider when we was fab. I mean, you know, it's George making a pastiche of it. Enough time had passed that he can do that. Right. It certainly would have come back around again i mean and you know paul and elvis costello were to a certain extent bringing back the sound of 64 65 beatles right so they certainly might have done some records along the way which sounded like magical mystery tour era beatles but that wouldn't have been the primary sound out of them i don't think right you know, after they split, there was a definite difference in the way McCartney would tend to orchestrate his material and the way Lennon would as far as string work. I mean, they were completely different sounds. Well, I mean, Paul was all too happy to keep the George Martin orchestral sounds going. Right. 
And I mean, George Martin did a lot of work for Paul through the 70s and into the 80s. This, this is true. I kind of got to go with, we don't know what they would have sounded like. <laughs> right. And they were all listening to different music anyway. Because I think Ringo got into disco before anybody else did, really. Because he would go to the clubs, I guess. That's kind of the other point is, well, they found a way to do a disco track. Paul certainly kind of sort of did with Goodnight Tonight, and Ringo has. George never did a disco track. But, I mean, and John was also a fan. He He's commented on that several times, and there's that funky little clip of him playing Voulez-vous coucher avec moi. Oh, George, oui. But you know what we should do? We should do disco, disco sound now. Disco sound? How? Right. Yeah. Like the bump. You know how to dance the bump? No. Like oh, you that, that one. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, I'll bump. Oh. <laughs> it's wonderful, wonderful. No, I don't think we can really talk about bump. Be serious now. Talk okay. about the super soul. Uh, I'll show you some. Disco soul music. The new... Yeah, uh, it's yeah, great. That's yeah, I've got a surprise for you. <laughs> I could see them trying something. I mean, disco isn't that far removed from what they loved. Well, I think they would have gone through a period of that, but, <clears throat> you know, when you read in interviews in, in 1980 about how enthusiastic uh, John was with the new wave scene, you know, he, he would have been part of that. They, they listened to different musics. That is true, although John was also turned on by the electronic coming up. And maybe if we had to say one direction they might have gone in, that's the direction they might have gone in. Both McCartney and Lennon were big fans of electronic music, not George's electronic music, although maybe they were fans of that as well. <laughs> electronic sounds, not electronic music. But And then you'd have to question whether they have gone through a reggae period. If we play this game, and they got back together in 1981 to record something. That was really what John and Paul had in common. McCartney would have been fresh off of McCartney too, and John loved that sort of stuff. So that may well have been an electronic-style album, which would either have aged terribly or be a classic. We don't know which. <laughs> That's fair. Very little in between. It wouldn't have just been a mediocre album. But, I mean, you know, you could say the same thing about Free as a Bird and Real Love. Right. That's Ladies and gentlemen, how about a nice hand for our director, Mr. Hal Gertner. Uh, Let's throw in one last one. It's a good one to end on. It's, it's from our friend and host emeritus, Lonnie Pena. What is the key to the Beatles' sustainability over 60 years? Us. <laughs> Us meaning the fans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's certainly a piece of it. I would go with the music. I mean, the canon, the 200-ish songs, they're not the 200 best songs ever created, but taken as a whole, there's something special about that. I agree. Only the music matters, really. The celebrity and the story is interesting to some folks. But really, it's the music. And that's why Get Back is as big as it is these days, you know? If people didn't care about the music, and 
everything else comes out of the music. We just love the music so much that we want to know more. We don't want to believe that there's something supernatural about it, and I don't believe there's anything supernatural about it, but the combination of these four guys plus George Martin is something really special. I agree. There may be other acts with 200 songs in the ballpark as good as what the Beatles did, but they don't have that added extra. Even though, as you say, it doesn't matter, it's the fact that there is an interesting story there. There's something that will make you want to keep diving deeper into it. It's like, ooh, oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Okay, so that's how this came to be. It's the best of history. Do you think that that sort of interest will continue for another 50 years? Not to the extent it is, but aren't we still asking those same questions about Shakespeare? You know, was he gay? Was he black? Did he have a secret daughter? Right. I'm just asking your opinion, whether you think it's going to last another 50 years. I think there will certainly be uh, some of it that will last 50 years. There was that YouTube video from a while back, <laughs> Beatles 3000, and where they got everything wrong because there had been natural disasters. Whatever records they still had of it were still enough to spawn historians interest in this distant future (laughs) right i think interest will wax and wane through the years as it has for the last 50 years but i think there's always going to be some fandom i do kind of believe that they are going to be as revered as beethoven and mozart and shakespeare they are going to be the 20th century's strongest artistic legacy, or certainly one of And I would agree with that. The, the portfolio of their songs is very impressive and is pretty much unequal. You know, I could say XTC comes close, in my opinion, but they didn't have the cultural impact that the Beatles brought to their genius. When I think about the 50s artists, you know, Elvis was special because of his talent, but Buddy Holly was a genius. Fair. It's Buddy Holly that begat the Beatles and the Hollies and really the whole British invasion in a lot of ways. But still, they have to make up the story for the Buddy Holly story. The the Gary Busey movie is all made up because there's not enough interesting bits to go into it. Buddy Holly's story is basically the story of a kid who could write songs and wanted to play music and, well... He managed to get a recording contract, make some hits, and die in a plane crash. Very few people are dissecting Buddy and Maria Elena the way that John and Yoko are dissected. For sure. All right, so that is Viewer Mail show number one. We do have some questions left over. We'll probably do another one somewhere along the way here this year. Right. This has been interesting. It's been a nice change of pace. Yeah, good to hear what other people are wondering about. If you would like to submit questions, submit them either to either of us or to the Facebook group, and we will include them in the next show. Talk to you next time. Adios. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Dear Dave, do you think Paul McCartney has a nice stereo? Thank you, David Smith, Camarillo, California. Ah, excellent question. Gee, um, I don't know anything about it. Paul, uh, do you know uh, Paul McCartney? Do you know anything about a stereo? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. You know, I remember the last time I was over at Paul's house. uh, Uh Uh-huh. He was having a big party. Yeah. And I think it went... Swinging party, Paul. Great stereo system. Japanese, isn't it? Yes, it is, mate. I think it's really. Now, wait a minute. Wait. Just hold it. Hal, no. Paul. Yeah. But you don't know Paul McCartney. That wasn't Paul McCartney. That was Biff Henderson and well, the goofy little wind no, there. I, I, I...
I don't know Paul McCartney, but I have hung out with some of the guys in Beatlemania. Uh, which is not exactly the Beatles, but an incredible simulation of... of the Beatles. It wasn't really the Beatles. Well, I don't really we know. We have a fun little show tonight. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.